there's a struggle in um, preaching and preachers and uh, some people, if you've heard them use this language, you might hear them say things like, like, well, our church just does expository preaching. Are you familiar with that phrase? Anyone? Expository preaching. Or we preach the Bible, we preach verse by verse or whatever. And then you have this uh, idea of uh, topical, right? And it's kind of over here and it's like, ah, topical. It's like we talk about why you should never touch alcohol. We don't believe that, but let's say that's, you know, it's a topic like here's marriage month and here's prayer month and here's month, whatever. And so here we try to, you notice we kind of float between both, but what we err on the side of is expository preaching. I would rather the word of God be the star. It's the whole reason we're in Judges. Judges is in like the top five books I didn't want to preach through. And so I picked it because the word of God is the star, not what I want to do. And so we're walking through it, right? And so one of the things though that's difficult in this expository preaching verse topical is that you end up with things that are thematic throughout the entire scripture. You notice everything we've looked at in Judges comes back to King Jesus because he's the point. It's the Messiah. Like Jesus is everything. It's the way, the truth, and the life. That's why we hung this thing that he said. He has all authority. He's with us always. And because of that, we go. We make disciples. We are his disciple. And so we'll find Jesus in that. But in that, you also find sometimes the why. Why is Jesus the main point? Why does God even want a relationship with us? And this is one of the themes we're going to talk about today. Look at verse 33, Judges 8, 33, and 34. This is where we're going to camp. There's some words in here that you might not want to be shared a lot for little ears. We're only going to say them a few times. Forgive me. I told my wife I wouldn't say them too many times. But it's the word of God, so it's not my fault. <laughs> Judges 8, 33. As soon as Gideon died... So Gideon does some things, and then near the end of his life, by the way, he did some bad things. He kind of let out in some idolatry. He uh, said he wasn't going to be a king, but then he acted like a king, and he did the exact opposite of what Deuteronomy 17 says a king should do, right? He had a whole bunch of wives, and he hoarded gold for himself. And Deuteronomy 17 says, don't do that. He did these things. He created an ephod. It's a religious thing. We talk about another time, but then people worshiped it. And they used this phrase there, the play the hall at the whore phrase. They used it back in uh, Judges 8.30. But now in Judges 8.33, as soon as Gideon died... The people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and the Baals, however you want to pronounce it, and made Baal Bareth their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God. Every week, this is the struggle. Israel did evil inside of the Lord. What are the two things they did that are evil? They forgot God. And they worshipped idols. They worshipped, they treasured, they valued with their heart. Their heart posture was idols. And so now you have this, something added to it. This is the second time Judges use this phrase. It was done back in Judges 2. And it was done, uh, Judges 2 was kind of like a uh, summary of what's going to happen. And it used this word here. But here it uses again that they went again and they whored after the Baals and Baal Bareth. Um, they didn't remember the Lord. Why do we have this intense adultery sexual language here? We've got to stop. So, I mean, we don't use this phrase very often. I hope you don't. Please, in your life, in your marriage with your children, don't just randomly say, oh, we're old after. We don't use this phrase. Why is it here? It's given me pause. No matter how many times I read Judges 8 and 9 this week, I couldn't get past this phrase. It really bothered me, and it led to a ton of study this week. And it turns out it's all through Scripture. So uh, they, this phrase, Baal Bereth, um, it's, uh, it's two different Hebrew words. Baal, which we'll get to this word in a minute. This word Baal, say Baal. It is a very complicated word. We'll get there in a minute. Bereth means, say Bereth. 
I got to have you say it because my wife hates Hebrew and me talking about languages. So then if you say it, it affirms that maybe I'm not crazy. You all love it now because we've said it together. Bereth means covenant, alliance, pledge. It's the covenant word used in all biblical covenants. This is really important. Raise your hand if you happen to just awesomely know everything about covenants and know what covenants are. You probably don't because we don't. Little guy in the back. Thank you. We don't do covenants, right? It's not language we use. Covenants, when you think of covenant, think marriage. Because so often in scripture, and this is true, a lot of Hebrew words, they're over. The symbolism of marriage and the symbolism of covenantal relationship, it's the best we've got. Because when you're married, it is tell what do us part. Death. And death is not life because you're dead. And so when you make a marital commitment, it is for your life until you die. You got it. Okay, this is really simple stuff. And so this covenantal language that comes in becomes so important because it's like a marriage. And so when they started worshiping Baal Bereth, what they are saying is this thing, this Baal, it is now the covenantal relationship we have. God made many covenants through scripture. We're going to talk about covenants real quick. Several of them. Can anyone name a covenant? Yeah, the Abrahamic covenant. There's one before that that's the, the rainbow, Noah, ooh, good shot, the Noahic, Noahic, uh, whatever, we'll say Noah covenant, and the Abrahamic covenant, and then you have the one on Mount, you have later on, you have the Davidic covenant, and then Jesus comes and says, I've got a new covenant, we'll talk about that here in a minute, but here, uh, we've got the Mosaic covenant, right, here it is, Exodus 19 through 24, they, God brought them out of Egypt, and then he brought them to Mount Sinai, we talked a ton about this in like February, March, we talked about, here are the names of God, God says, here's who I am, and we studied those, and we talked a lot about the golden calf and those things, shake your head that you were at least hearing. You remember that? Good. Okay. And so there at Mount Sinai, here's what happened. God rescues Israel from slavery in Egypt and promises to make them his own treasured possession, a holy set apart nation. He will personally dwell in their midst. Not some God that you have to go to. He's coming to dwell in their midst, right? And then he's going to bring them into a promised land. He, Yahweh, will be their God and they, Israel, will be his people. Moreover, they will be a kingdom of priests. What do priests do? What do preachers do? They preach, right? Priest Cohen. Ah, is there a Cohen in the room? There you are. Cohenite, right? The priests, they were also, they were guardians, they were protectors, but they also taught people. They reminded people. Their whole life was to point to who? Yahweh. So they were going to be a kingdom of priests that mediate his goodness and glory to all nations. Israel was God's chosen people for the world. And as you see, the whole struggle that Jesus had with their God's chosen people for themselves, it's all about us. We're special, you're not. You're excluded, we're included. That's the whole tension. And so God makes this covenant with them. And so again, now, he, follow me, we have this covenantal language, and then they say, no, no, no. You made this covenant with us, and it's, it's got marriage tones to it. We're going to worship Baal Bereth, the idol of our covenant. We have created our own covenant, Right? When you're not married, when you break a marital covenant, what's that called? Divorce, right? Here's the sort of tones that we're getting now. Something being broken. So they're saying Baal is their covenant. Now, Baal is an interesting word. 
It's three ways this word can be used and more. So I'm sorry if you're not a language person, this bores you. Stay with me. This is so important. Because raise your hand if you use the word Baal every day. You don't. So if we're reading about it, we got to talk about what this means. It can be a proper noun and it's Lord, the Canaanite deity, some Phoenician God in there too. And it could be a proper noun for that. But it can also be a noun for owner, ruler, husband, Lord. And the verb for it, the root, this is the root of the words. All the words Baal come from this root word, Baal. It's all the same. Notice. Same word. Try to be a translator in Hebrew, right? You see, ba'al, ba'al, ba'al. Which one is it? That's the problem. That's the point. Right? Just like if I say, I love cake, I love my wife, I love football. That's I love. I love things. Love. Okay, it's a difficult. It's difficult to interpret. The verb is to marry, to be Lord, husband over. And kind of the archaic idea of your husband, you're married to him, and he lords over you. He controls you, and that's the idea. Okay, see, these first two words are the same, but the root word it comes from is uh, is more of a husband marital relationship. So when we see Baal Bereth, here's what your mind has to be thinking of. There's a marital covenant being broken. Now, now you can understand what it means to whore after the Baals. They're going out and they're saying... We're going to choose a different husband. We're going to choose a different relationship, man. It makes me really emotional because you have experienced this. All of us have been hit by divorce and broken families. And so imagine God who's made this intimate covenant, who's done all these things. I will do this for you. I will do this for you. Read Exodus 19. I will do this for you. And they say, you are not our husband. We're going to find our own husband. And what has God done up to this point in Judges? He has rescued them over and over and over. And so we should read this with the passion and uncomfortableness that it's due. Israel, why are you doing this? This is your hubby, your hubs, your boo. What are you doing? They're like, ah, Balbareth, that's our guy. Mm. Love you, Balbareth. You and me, we're one. Mm-mm-mm. No. And so it should confuse and great tension. When you see this phrase whoring after. Like I put several translations up here of this verse. So uh, I'm not going to read all these words. You can read them. I don't want your kids asking about these words over and over and over. I'm trying to honor my wife here who's like, hey, please don't say this word a thousand times. But uh, now the kids are listening. Whoops. Anyway, so you see it's different. Like committed uh, infidelity, uh, prostitute themselves. Or, see, there's different translations. They're all translating the same word. It's zanah. Can you throw the zanah up there? Say zanah. Please never look at your spouse or anyone and say, quit zanawing. Don't zanaw me. It's a terrible phrase, right? It should be uncomfortable. There are words in our language that if you say them to someone, it connotates a, a sexual promiscuity that they approach in life that's very offensive. We've all been to high school, right? And we know those phrases. You don't want to be named as this in the, as a girl, scarlet letter, all this sort of stuff. You don't want this. And so this phrase, zanaw, it connotates to, to be a harlot, to act as a harlot, to commit fornication, to commit adultery, to, to be a cult prostitute, to be unfaithful to God. And this word, zanah, say zanah, it is all over the Old Testament. Man, please just look it up. In your free time, you want a Bible nerd out? Look how powerful this word is used. It is in Leviticus, it's in Exodus, it's in Numbers, Deuteronomy, Judges, First and Second Chronicles, Psalms, Isaiah, Ezra, Hosea, and more. And the phrase is to play the harlot. That's what the phrase ultimately means. And some translators say, hey, let's say this phrase because that's the idea. You're, a play, you're playing the act of a harlot. You're choosing to do that. Culturally, we don't love cheaters. Those who, who 
have affairs, who break relationships. If you've ever been cheated on, you experience this. Something deep, intimate is broken. If you've ever seen a family that's broken by an affair, broken by divorce, these things hurt so bad. And in general, when people take advantage of us sexually and, and we're supposed to have this intimate, beautiful relationship with them and they break it and they twist it, it hurts. It corrupts us so deeply. Why? Because God intended us for a, to have a right marital relationship, one in which there is not an act of playing the harlot. People aren't whoring around. That's what God created. And instead, Israel's saying, nah, we're going to play the harlot. But then the Lord, he continues to be faithful. He continues to save them. He continues to rescue them. He lets them suffer their consequences, but he continues to be faithful and rest them. In fact, there's all these verses I was going to pull where God says in, in Jeremiah and Hosea and Ezekiel, and he's calling and saying, I want to rescue you. Come back to me, my bride. If you know the story of Hosea, that's the whole point, right? It's, it's an analogy of like, hey, Israel has left me and they've gone to go out and play the harlot and I'm welcoming them back. And here Gideon died. And, and instead of just saying Israel did evil and said, Lord, now it says, no, they played the harlot. They are maritally unfaithful to the covenant that God has. And God, who is the one that's being cheated on, he continues to remain faithful. He continues, in fact, he continues to say, I'm actually going to make this right. Uh, All of Ezekiel and Hosea, they're very intimate languages. You should read uh, Ezekiel uh, 16 sometime, uh, Ezekiel 36. It's all about this analogy of God bringing in the harlot and washing her and making her his bride. And she's going to try to go off, but he's going to hold her tight. It's an analogy for humankind, right? We get to Ezekiel 36 and he says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone uh, from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. I will deliver you from all uncleanliness. This is not how we treat cheaters. That's not your inclination to treat those who are cheating on you, to treat those who are supposed to love you very intimately and choose to go love other people very intimately. God says, I'm going to make it right. I'm going to put my spirit in you. I'm going to give you a new heart. Your heart is playing the harlot. And I'm going to give you a new heart. That's his language. I'm going to write my covenant on your heart. So deep inside the heart in Hebrew, it's the seed of everything of who you are, right? Your will, your your desires, uh, your emotions. It's all heart. That's your idea. It's kind of like fire to ask, where do you feel it most? You have a broken heart. Where do you feel it? And you'd be like, in this region. This is where I feel it. It's kind of in my gut, kind of in my heart. That's it. That's the idea of heart. Lev in Hebrew. He says, I'm going to give you a new heart, a new will, a new emotion a new posture that has my law on it. I'm going to do it. Not you have to do it because you've messed it up, you whorish people. I'm going to do it. Go on to Jeremiah 31. This is a big prophecy. Jeremiah 31. All of Hebrews, we want to be Jeremiah 31 people. Here it comes. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by my hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their 
hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one say to his brother, know the Lord, for they shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. I will forgive their iniquities. I will remember their sin no more. This is not how we treat cheaters. This is not how we treat adulterers, people who have affairs. But God says, no, no, no. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to wipe you clean. I'm going to make a new covenant. You've broken all the covenants. And I'm going to make a new one. And so if you're sitting there, you're like, great history, neat Hebrew words. I'm not an Israelite, David. Turns out I'm not even from that place across the pond. I'm here in America. We're not Israelites. No, see here, it keeps going. This is a theme throughout all of Scripture. So there's this whole wedding and bridal language that enters the New Testament. When John the Baptist sees Jesus, he refers to him as the bridegroom. Say bridegroom means groom. It's a groom, right? John the Baptist, see, he refers to his right. Jesus has many parables referring to himself as the bridegroom. Those who believe in Jesus in the New Testament, the New Testament write it as the church. They refer to the church as what? The bride of the bride of Christ. You see this in 2 Corinthians. Paul pushes on this idea. Uh, in Revelation, there's this whole idea that uh, if you keep reading Revelation, even beyond what I wrote, that eventually then the, the church comes to God and God consummates them together. And it's this whole bridal ceremony language of it's adorned as a bride, this bridal language. Don't be weird about it. Don't be like, oh, I'm a guy. I'm not getting married to another guy. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about this intimate analogy. The best we can understand, the best language we have is an intimate, lifelong, eternal partnership with someone else that is not broken, that is not sexually abused, that is not, not one person lording over the other and squashing each other. In fact, this is for free. I took it out of my notes. In Hosea, there's this verse where God says, you will no longer call me Baal, but you will call me Ish. Ish is the word that was used in Genesis for man as opposed to woman when Adam and Eve came together. It was an intimate word, and a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. And so God tells Hosea's prophecies, you won't call me Baal anymore. Not this husband that lords over you, but you will call me Ish. This man who is intimately connected with you is one. What a beautiful thing. Why would we not want to be with this God? Why would Israel not want to be with this God? He's done everything. And so Jesus goes on and he tells us like, hey, hey, I'm going to make this new covenant with you. When we do the Lord's Supper, Jesus said, drink this cup, the cup of the new covenant. Jesus is making the new covenant. And then Jesus says what? I'm going to put my spirit into you. John 6, 63. He says, uh, uh, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help. The words I've spoken to you are spirit and life. When Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, John 4. Actually, by the way, well language in scripture, when Hebrews read about wells, that's where marriages happen. Look it up in your Bible. How often marriages and things start and get going at wells. And so Jesus is talking to a woman at the well. And he doesn't say, Girl, I'm going to marry you because I'm single Jesus. He says, no, I will give you water and you'll never need to drink again because we will not gather geographically to worship on this mountain, this mountain, but we'll worship God in spirit and in truth. The words I speak are spirit and truth. Ezekiel and Jeremiah told us that he was going to write his law in his heart. He was going to fix this new covenant. And Jesus says, I'm going to give you my spirit. John 14, 26. We've quoted a lot here. John 14, 26. Jesus says, uh, the spirit is going, I'm going to give you the spirit and it's going to teach you all things and bring to memory all that I've taught you. What does that sound like? That sounds like writing the law on your heart, giving a new heart. 
Jesus gives his spirit to his disciples. Peter later on, when people are asking, what do we do about the gospel when Peter's preaching? He says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sin and receive the spirit. Paul writes in Ephesians 1, we're sealed in the spirit. The Holy Spirit, once we believe, enters us. God transforms us through his spirit because our posture is playing the harlot. That's what we do. We play the harlot. I'm not a cheater. I never cheat on nothing in my life. I don't even cheat on tests. You do. Because your heart isn't loving the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind. That's not your natural posture. Your heart is for you. That's what you do. And God says, I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to give you, although you keep having... So let's recap. Here's where I so far. God has created all of us. And he's created us in a world which he's given it to us and wants us to have a right relationship with him. He wants a people that he can reign with and have us glorify him and enjoy all of creation. Right? And then we said... Nah, we want to be like God ourselves. Genesis 3. We want to know good fruit for ourselves. So we rebelled and God kept making covenants, marital covenants with several people over and over saying, no, 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 follow me. And if you follow me, everyone else will follow me and they'll all come together. And we kept breaking it over and over and over. And God never said, I'm going to divorce you. I'm going to go find a new people. He said, I'm going to be faithful and I'm going to chase you down. That's why this is so important because God's chasing you down right now for all the times you don't care about him. For all the times you think this isn't important, he's chasing us because he loves us. That's why we have the famous scripture, for God so loved the world. He loves you and he wants a right relationship with you. He said everything to make it possible. Judges 8.33, as soon as Gideon died, the people turned against and whored after the Baals and the Baalbareth made Baalbareth their God. And the people of Israel did not remember their God. Here's something so important to remember. Here's where we're going to land today. This is why worship stuff is a little different. It's all trying to remind us of this truth. Israel did this as one group. It doesn't say, now John and Wade and Jerry went off and messed it up for Israel. That's not what it says. It said, Israel did it. And later on, it refers to us as the bride of Christ. We're one body, one in Christ. In fact, Romans 12, 5 says, So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members. We're going to read this together. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. That means that the people sitting in this corner are individually members of the people sitting in that corner. Intricately woven together in Christ if they believe in King Jesus. Your faith is not your own. Your sin is not your own. Israel hoard together. And we play the harlot together. This is why we care so much about the songs we sing. This is why when Scott was here or Nathan and I or Tish and I, whoever's leading, we talk about what does this say about the gospel and does this lead us to actually worship God or does it lead us to worship ourselves? This is why you won't see us do these big emotionals. We could have lasers and lights. We've got the budget. We could make this place sick. I could do magic tricks again and we could fill the room, but it would do nothing to worship King Jesus, who is our bride, who we're his bride and he's our groom and he wants an intimate relationship with us. I refuse to lead us to play the harlot. I'm not going to do it. And if that means we're uncool, then we're uncool. If that means we sing ancient hymns sometimes, we sing ancient hymns. If that means we just read scripture and Carrie comes up here and just we drudgingly repeat scripture, that's what we're going to do. Because we worship King Jesus. 
not ourselves. And that's our posture, though, isn't it? That's our struggle. Israel struggled to play the harlot. And if we're the bride of Christ, we struggle too. We struggle to play the harlot. Romans one twenty five says, They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Israel forgot the Lord and worshipped other things. We forget the Lord and worship other things. And in several weeks, you know, I hit on, we did the time map last week. And it's like, think about your time. Because again, uh, you as an individual, you have impact with your family and the people around you. So of course we want you to be thinking about it. But also, you need to be thinking about it, how, how it impacts your family and how your family's posture is and how your family's posture is uh, wherever it is. The soccer field, the ice skating rink, the public school, uh, the home school. You need to be thinking about all these things. But actually... Everyone's going to tell you it starts in the home. It starts with you. It starts with the church because we are the bride of Christ. And your faith on your own isn't complete faith. Gosh, I hate to say that and step on your toes. It doesn't make sense for you to worship on your own because you're not married to God on your own. We are the church. We're one body. This is why we say we're individual members of it. Your individual faith matters. Plenty of place in scripture says you repent. You choose. Because your sin affects us. Your marriage affects us. Your parenting affects us. Your job. Your hobbies. Your Netflix addiction. Your alcoholism. It affects all of us. Because we're one body. Please see that. Please take a look at your life and say, how are these things connected, those around us? John 3 goes on to tell us, John 3, 16, for God's soul, it says there are people who don't want to walk into the light because they don't want to be exposed, right? And so many of us are that way. Our individualistic 21st century Western culture has taught us, you do you, low, low, YOLO, do your own thing, and you just focus on your own life because if everyone knows about you, then you can't have the clout that you want to have. People won't believe your Instagram posts if they really know who you are. They won't believe your Facegram posts if they really know who you are. The Word tells us we are inextricably connected to each other. We are one of another. We need each other. But we forget and we struggle. So what do we do? How do we, how do, we do this? Deuteronomy tells us, he told Israel, He or Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. God wants us to love Him. And He goes on to say, hey, remind each other. Write it on your foreheads, write it on your doorposts, teach your kids, talk about it when you go. Don't forget, because He goes on to say in Deuteronomy 6, you go and forget. You're going to focus on yourself. And here we are in Judges, and what have they done? They've forgotten, and they've focused on themselves. We do this as one body. We need each other. And this isn't merely this, this playing the harlot, this, this uh, worshiping God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. If those are the two options, it's not something we just do on our own. But it's also not merely just gathering here, singing three songs plus a response and leaving. That's not what God's called you to. He hasn't called you to be an observer, a consumer of church. You are the church. And so when we talk about volunteering on things, it's not because we're just trying to be a cool organization that keeps up with things. It's not because we just need to pump the room full of more seats and more activities. It's because we are the body of Christ. And we're the kingdom of priests now. You're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. I think it's 1 Peter, 2 Peter. We are now the priests that go out, the priesthood of believers. It's a core Baptist belief, by the way. We are a priesthood of believers. God has given all of you to proclaim who he is. And that, that's why your stuff affects our stuff. 
How do we do this? First, we need to acknowledge that we were created to worship Him. Please believe this, that we are His bride, we are one body, and nothing that you do is meaningless. Everything in your life communicates something to you, to the people around you, to the world. And so if you're in Christ, put away the old things. Put on Christ. We just read that together. You do that together. We need to do that together. You need to let people expose you in your life and say, Hey, Mr. Wade, why aren't you doing that, bro? I love you and I want to talk about that. We need those people in our lives. Do you have people that can speak that directly into your lives that protect you from playing the harlot? Because that's how God sees it. God sees it as us rejecting him and playing the harlot. And King Jesus died, and he took on all the ways in which we do that. That's the gospel, is it not? That Jesus said, I'm going to bring the new covenant. God came down as Christ said, I'm going to take on all the ways that you've sinned, all the ways that you've committed idolatry, all the ways you've committed adultery, and I'm going to brutally nail it to the cross and take it all on. And then I'm going to raise again because he lives. We can face tomorrow because Jesus didn't just die. He rose again. And so through our faith in him, he sees you as right. He sees you as righteous. Acknowledge that you were created for worship and turn to Jesus. Everything you do is connected. I've already said this, but your marriage, your parenting, your job, your hobbies. Please believe how connected we are. We do this together. We need each other. Look at someone across the room and say, You need me and I need you in Christ. Do it again. Find someone else. Look into their eyes. You need me and I need you in Christ. So important. Now, church, those of you who have been here forever, you've heard all the sermons under the book. You were born and bred in here. Look around. Who's not here? Who used to sit in that section and and that person sat over here? And and who do you think is, oh, they're missing? Why aren't you contacting them? Why haven't you said, we are one body and we miss you? This is why it should hurt when people aren't here. This is why so many of you experience this tension of like, remember these families and now they're gone? Because we're committed bride together. And when we separate, we're one body committed to each other. It should matter to you when your buddies from high school don't come to church on Sunday. It should matter to you when your work employees that you know so much about their life and all the gossip about the hair care products they use, but they're never at church. It should matter to you. Because they're eternally heading to heaven or hell, separated from God. And God has put you in their life. And God, more than that, has put us together as the body to help each other do that. What are you struggling with? Who is walking through that with you? We're going to land on a few verses in the New Testament that give us very practically things to do. Uh, several verses are going to come up here. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Let us, this is all us language, one body. So if you're a Christian, you're seeing this room, you're a Christian watching from home, these verses are written to you. If you're not a Christian, okay, they're not written to you. They're inviting you. They're saying, here's what you're missing. This is the world God created you for. Let us consider how to stir up one another. Does that sound comfortable? Do you want to be stirred up? No, but you need to be stirred up. Because otherwise, like Israel, you'll forget God and you'll worship yourself. You'll find a new covenant partner. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is why we gather, to worship King Jesus, to stir each other up for good works. Ephesians 4.1, speaking truth in love. We speak truth to each other. We're to grow up 
in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. This isn't just for Lee Idol. It's not just so Lee grows up. It's so Lee connected with the body of Christ. We all grow together. We need each other. Philippians 2.12. Work out your own salvation, your own meaning y'alls. Work out y'alls salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work his good pleasure. God is working in us. Work out your the things that God has saved us from. This is why we talk about the gospel every week. We're continuing to repent and believe in the gospel. We're attending that. We're, we're continuing to understand how we have prayer, scripture, and church grow in our lives. Working out your salvation, fear, and trembling. First Corinthians twelve twenty six. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. If you've been here for several years, you've heard me talk about this a thousand times, but I can't stop talking about it because I've seen it. I've seen the pain of broken marriages and I've seen kids who then get into relationships and they're broken because God set us up to have right marriage relationships. God set us up to have right single relationships with him. Jesus talked about that. We've got to honor that as well. God set the church up to have a right marriage relationship with him and we hurt each other. We step on each other and then we get distant. It's on you, man. Please believe that your life is connected to us because it's going to be so frustrating and sad and confusing and I refuse to let it happen that that the good Lord comes back and he calls us and, and he looks at you and he says, hey, I didn't know you. You're not my bride. You decided to do your own thing. You played the harlot. That's in scripture. We talked about Jesus said it's a narrow road. And he said, I may never know you. Come on. This is why we teach these things. Maybe you don't know Jesus. Maybe you're not a part of his bride. Maybe you are and you've forgotten that we're necessary for each other. Those of you who have suffered and have had those come along you suffer, you feel those verses. You know, okay, I know what it means to be one body. Because I can't handle every day waking up without this person in my life, but it's a little easier because of the body of Christ. I can't handle every day waking up with this disease, but it's a little bit easier because I have the body of Christ. This is why we're one. I don't know how to parent these wild, ridiculous kids who are always angry. It's a little bit easier because we're the body of Christ. We parent them together as one body. Pick a thing in your life. Make it corporate. It's the bride of Christ. I could talk about this all day. We're going to move into a time of response. We've got two videos that we're doing in response this morning. One video is for us just to sit and take in. We've done this in the youth two different times. It's a song by Jimmy Needham, and it basically just calls out, Worship is more than a song. That worshiping God is a heart posture, that we could play the heart, that we could be idolatrous. And I would encourage you during this song, maybe you just zone out and you just talk to God. But we're going to let all the things we've read in Scripture just kind of rest on us. This theme of this marital covenant that God has made with us through Jesus Christ, where His Spirit has inserted us and begins to transform us. We're going to take all that in. We're going to watch this Jimmy Needham song. And then... We're going to respond through uh, singing a song together. I'll guide us through in that. But for this time, you can sit here and watch this video. If at any point you, you feel the need to say, you know, I need to give my life to the Lord. I just, I haven't, I've never done that. I need to get baptized. I've never done that. I'm going to be sitting right here. I'll pray with you about that. We'll walk through that together as one body. If you've never joined a church and you don't have any committed affiliate to a, to a church body, Let's come talk about it. Let's do that today because God has called us all to be the bride of Christ. Your life doesn't make sense apart from the church because God has called you to be his bride in community with his church. It says we must not worship something that isn't worth it. Clear the stage. Make some room for the one who deserves it. Maybe that's metaphorical in your life. Maybe there's something you need to clear the stage on. Say, man, there's a lot of things that are just the most focused thing in my life. 
anything I want with all my heart is an idol. And so maybe that's you. Maybe church, that's us. Maybe sometimes we need to clear the stage. We need to say, hey, we need to stop thinking that we need this, this, and this. The only thing that matters that we gather here for is King Jesus. Either he's risen and he saves us and he's given us a new heart. His spirit's in us and he's given us a new covenant or he's not. And if he is, then is he enough for us to gather? Is he enough for us to bring other people here to gather? What do we need to clear the stage of in our life? The last song we're going to sing together, we're going to read a part of Colossians 3 again together, and then we're going to sing a song called The Heart of Worship. Uh, and we're just going to, we're going to play a video with lyrics. We're going to stand and sing it here in a minute. Uh, if you know the story of the song, in the 90s, uh, there was a big church boom in the 90s. Maybe some of you remember it. Um, uh, I was a part of the 90s church boom. I saw it. Like every church was building new buildings. It was huge. Everyone was going to church. And then uh, it kind of has tapered off a lot, right? You kind of see post-Christendom seeping in. That's beside the point. But this church recognizes Matt Redman's church. Maybe you've heard of him. He's a popular worship artist. He's a musician and a worship artist. Matt Redman, his church, his pastor challenged them to say, hey, are we coming to God and offering to him our hearts? Are we coming to him and offering the truth of him being glorified, him being king? Or are we gathering to consume songs, to consume things? Why are we gathering? And so their church stripped for, there's a lot of different versions of the story, but in general, they just stripped it down, unplugged. They had uh, very little singing. They had very little, they did a lot of scripture reading, a lot of uh, uh, responsive vocal things. And, and it was a rough time for them. And, and as the worship leader, Matt Redmond's like, man, I kind of felt like crippled, like, this is my job to lead people in songs. And can I lead people in worship without songs, without, without all the band, without all the stuff, right? And that's what they came to. And, and I think it reminds me of what we've read in Colossians 3. The reason we sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs together is because we need to remind each other of what's true. What's true isn't the median, isn't how cool we look, all the things we're doing. What's true is the scriptures. And so we sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs together and to the Lord because Horizontally, we remind each other of what's true. Vertically, we worship God together as one body, as his bride, right? And so at the end of this, Matt Redman is writing this song that we're going to sing called The Heart of Worship. And I would like us to read the verses in Colossians 3 again, just the last part. And then we're going to stand and sing the Heart of Worship song together and, and be thinking. This is still time to respond, however you feel the need. Is the gospel enough for you to be a part of the church? Church, that's our challenge. Do we gather because of King Jesus or is there something else? What do we need to clear the stage of? How could we be stepping into playing the harlot? Because God has this beautiful narrative all through scripture where he is the groom and we are his bride. He's intimately calling us to have this oneness with him and he's done everything. He's been faithful. Are we being faithful to him to receive it, to trust in him? What do we need to clear the stage on? Joe, can you bring up the Colossians 3 verses? If you guys could stand, we're going to read this together and then we're going to sing the heart of worship together. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him.